Hey, folks, thanks again for uh, your patience. I, I ideally try to get this show out every other Tuesday, but just, you know, life is crazy. Today's Wednesday. Tomorrow's Thanksgiving. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm thankful for y'all. This has been awesome. The show has a ton of momentum. Uh, and please leave reviews. One of our most recent reviews was like, you know, I, I wish y'all had dove more into the history of a place. These episodes are really supposed to be really introduce you to a place or to an organization or to a person that's making a difference. It's really up to you to, you know, go get their book or dive into the the issues or dive into the opportunities uh, on your own time. This is really just to get you familiar with the people who are behind the protection and connection of Wild Florida. So I just wanted to clarify that uh, for anyone else that might leave a review. Happy Wednesday and, and most importantly tomorrow, Happy Thanksgiving. I'm very thankful for all of y'all. I hope you go enjoy it. You have a great meal with people you love. Welcome to Florida Uncut, the podcast interviewing the folks behind the protection and connection of wild Florida. I'm your host, Mason Gravely. And something I've heard my whole life, a thousand people have been moving to Florida every day for as long as I can remember. And I feel like it's been fairly consistent with some fluctuations, of course, but all it means, what's going to be true no matter what, is Florida's growing. More people are coming here literally every day. As much as you might feel like you want to, you can't close the door behind you. That's just not how this works. So how do we grow smart? Well, that's the goal and that's the mission that Haley Bush and a thousand friends of Florida are on, is focusing on the concept of smart growth because it's possible. People love Florida. People love the idea of Florida. But what we don't want to happen is to love this place to death. How do we manage growth with keeping intact the Florida that we love and the Florida that needs to exist to continue to love? No one wants to come to dirty, algae-ridden beaches, terrible neighborhoods, and the industries that make this state what it is to be gone. So in this episode, we're going to dive into what smart growth is, how to achieve it, what Haley and her team actually do, how you can get involved, and some of the success stories that she's paid attention to. So let's go ahead and dive in. All right, folks, welcome to Florida Uncut. You heard a little of Haley's story in the intro. Haley Bush, welcome to uh, Florida Uncut. Thanks, Mason. Thanks for having me. Gosh, I, you know, let, let's talk a little bit about a thousand friends of Florida before we jump into your personal story. Who, who are you and what do you do at a thousand friends of Florida? That name is very interesting. And I, and I want to kind of hear, you know, what is the idea behind that? The name and the idea behind it isn't as interesting as the created. So I'll, I'll share both. But 1,000 Friends of Florida, we're a statewide smart growth environmental organization. And so smart, mo- smart growth means um, better urban planning. How do we manage all of the people moving to Florida? Um, we're one of the fastest growing states in the country and have been for decades. Um, and so the idea behind that is we've got beautiful natural resources, wild lands, freshwater springs, coastal estuaries. How do we manage all of this population growth and then the resulting development um, while protecting those natural resources and environmental gems? 
And so when Thousand Friends of Florida was created back in the 1980s, along the same time as a bunch of environmental and then growth management related laws were being passed in the Florida legislature. And so we served as kind of a citizen watchdog organization, both to advocate for good policy and also to step up and, and speak out against bad state policy or local policy. So what that means is if a, a city or county or even the state level is promoting a, a type of growth or a project or something that would allow for urban sprawl, and that's our big bad word at 1000 Friends is sprawling growth pattern. So the way I describe that to folks is like, if you think about driving along strip malls <laughs> where you have like four, six lane highway speeding through an, an urban area, you know, you've got your McDonald's, your gas station, your strip mall style of development. And it kind of, it's a, in my opinion, it's a really yucky feeling compared to a lot of the beautiful Florida land that we drive through. That's, you've got horse farms, rural and agricultural farms in the Northwest Panhandle, some of the best timberland, silviculture farms up there. So on the, so two different feelings, right? Rural, bucolic old Florida, and then you've got kind of what results everywhere. It's not just intrinsic to Florida, right? Urban growth patterns that just kind of sprawl out and out and out. You know, every Floridian I talk to, every body I talk to doesn't like the sprawl, doesn't like to see nature cut down. And these aren't, you know, it's just, a, this isn't an echo chamber of people that just think and talk like me. I, I ask all kinds of people, why does it continue to happen if no one likes it. There are, you know, the businesses like a Lowe's or a Home Depot or or all the the, the yeah. chains that fill up these plazas, people don't want to see that happen. Why does it continue to? Well, I'll, and I'll counter your point a little bit. People do want to see Lowe's and Home Depot, you know, places to buy your, your home improvement stuff. I think what we don't want to see is just, it's like this never-ending strip of growth and development. Why does it keep happening? Well, it's challenging. You've got you know, a local government jurisdiction, a city. I live in St. Petersburg, so I'll use St. Petersburg as an example. We're in the south, south kind of central part of Pinellas County, Peninsula, and we've got our city boundary, right? And then you've got other cities and counties and their boundaries, but someone who lives in Pinellas County in our peninsula, they're not necessarily thinking about where the city line ends, right? If they live on one side of it, their day-to-day -day involves kind of their whole, whatever's drivable, walkable within their, wherever they live, their community. And so when it comes to regulating sprawl, it's it's an intergovernmental thing. And that can be challenging. Um, over the decades, we've seen growth management policy at the state level whittled down to where the requirements and kind of the, the, the hard regulations have been eroded and, and, and undone over the years. So the requirements for two local governments to plan and work together to prevent sprawl across those boundaries, it's been weakened, significantly weakened over the decades. So that's one reason or one example of how this stuff continues. But frankly, it's we're a really popular, great state to, to live in, right? It's a beautiful climate. You know, you're never more than like two hour drive from a beach. To anybody you talk to, all the people you're talking to, Mason, you probably hear the different reasons why Florida is, is where they chose to live or chose to stay or return back to. Um, and that's hard to that's hard to counter. You know, you can't stop people from wanting to enjoy that and come to, to Florida. So that will always be both a, a, a great benefit of ours and a challenge as the state grows and develops. 
Well, I was going to ask, uh, what what were some of the, you know, when, when Thousand Friends of Florida got started, a lot of times organizations like yours get started based, based on some hot button item that they fought against. And they're like, you know what, we need to organize. Uh, and it starts this organization and it continues to live on and, and, and fight other battles that are similar what were the issues back in the late 80s that led to the founding of this organization? What, what what was happening? You know, I don't think it was one issue in one place that kind of sparked it. We had a lot of the, I'll call them like the nerdy planner types up in Tallahassee <laughs> who, who were involved in writing the laws, some land use attorneys, urban planners. And so they wanted to continue to see the good work of the 1980s, early 90s. And so that's what led them to to form 1,000 Friends, but really I think before that and what kind of sparked the stuff in the late 70s, early 80s was what you were seeing all over the country, right? The folks in, what was it, the Ohio Cuyahoga River was on fire. <laughs> the, oh, yeah. kind of the That was the kickstart, or one of the kickstarts to the environmental movement. Rachel Carson's Silent Spring about sudden decline in wildlife, bird species, bird populations due to overuse of pesticides. You were seeing those sorts of things in Florida as well. Our, our waters were overly polluted as more people moved further and further south in our state. The Everglades is kind of, in Florida, the big one that folks, I think physically, you can, those that were there and, and what has been written and recorded about it, just the, the artificial you know, canal building and draining of our greatest swamp <laughs> um, and the repercussions on Florida Bay, the Keys, stuff that the average person could see with their eyes, right? The degradation of water quality in, in South Florida. So that would be one of that time, 80s, 90s, that folks really saw and used as kind of a, an indicator of what was going on big picture wise. All right. So so you, Thousand Friends of Florida, where's the Thousand Friends? Is that just kind of like a name of, of, of like lots of people getting together supporting this? Is it, or is there so a story there? <laughs> There are other 1,000 friends groups across the country. Not a, not a lot, maybe like less than 10. Not a thousand. Not a thousand. Okay. No, there's only 50 states. So we in Oregon, it was started the first 1,000 friends group, and it was a fundraising thing. It was like, let's see how quickly we can get 1,000 people to donate money, and we'll soon have 1,000 friends of Florida. It was used to form the organizations, right? So it's it's like not even related to the mission. My version, uh, rewritten history here about 1,000 friends groups, I think it's about just in states with rapid population growth, right? I mean, Florida has just about 1,000 people moving here per day. I think the official number is closer to 900. So the way I'd frame it is we've got almost 1,000 people per day moving to the state of Florida. And for scale, that's like the equivalent of a city the size of Orlando coming to Florida each year. And so all of those thousand people, let's call them friends. Let's rope them in. Like we can't put up a wall and say you can't come to Florida. Instead, let's figure out how to educate them, uh, share with them what makes Florida so special, right? Or whatever that is to you, which part of the natural environment or springs, coastal, you name it, right? Um, and let's let's bring them into this and explain what it means to be a Floridian and protect what we've got here. So that's my uh my version of 1000 Friends of Florida, the name, that's what I think it really signifies. I like that. And, and yeah, I'm looking, you know, I did look up uh, the 1000 Friends of Florida. Have you, have you heard of the 1000 True Fans theory? I don't mm -mm. know. It's a, What is that? 
it's like you know if you want to make a living doing your passion or 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 if you want to do some new creative idea that that sounds a little um you know how am i going to make this happen you the, the idea to keep in mind or this could apply to anything not just what i just mentioned but a thousand true fans is you'd only need a thousand people to really care about what you do to make a difference in the world and uh uh, whether that to be make a living, whether that to be start a movement, you just need a thousand people who are, you know, willing to give you a decent amount of their time. Or, or, or I think one of the metrics is if you have a thousand people support you with a hundred dollars a year with the products you make, you know, that's a hundred thousand dollars. You should be able to make it. It's a Tim Ferriss. It's an idea from Tim Ferriss that he shares a lot. But um, but I, I'll cut all this by the way. No, no, <laughs> so. no, 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 that, no. That's that's useful. I think we should keep it. That's that's. I think that's the same concept that these Similar, thousand yeah. friends groups. Right, Tim Ferriss is great. I my my husband is a big fan, and through him, I listen to the podcasts as well. But yeah, that um, I mean, we've got like eighteen thousand people on our email list. I can't remember off the top of my head what our socials are at right now, but we've got the thousands going, um, and we're pretty proud of that. I think it's a matter of just we've been around for for decades. We've kind of you know ebbed and flowed in terms of how large of an organization we are. Um, so that's we're there, and I think folks. Folks are familiar with us. Um, we offer webinars to um, our, they're free to anyone. Um, we promote them through our emails. And so they, those range from like heavily environmental type topics to urban planning concepts, um, urban planning philosophy. Uh, there's a sprawl repair. How do we undo or repair urban sprawl? That was an interesting one from last year. So we, we get that out to all of the, the thousands of members and, um, I don't think we've broken the 1,000 participant mark for one of our webinars, but we had 997 one time. Jeez, uh, close enough, so, close enough. Close enough. Well, you don't want to rename right. the organization. 997 Friends of Florida. Um, So, all right, sprawl repair, that's really interesting. Can, can we dive into that just a second? What it, what does that look like? What What is the example there? Because there's a lot of terminology and, and almost uh, little sayings that are in this, this uh, world. And one of them is, oh, you know, yeah. the last crop is, is homes or houses or sprawl. So yeah. it's like, you don't really, it's a checkpoint you never go back from, but it sounds like you actually can. What, what was that idea? Yeah. I think in the planning world, you also hear folks call it like redevelopment or retrofitting urban layout. So it, I'm not going to get it the way she did. Her name was Galina Tachieva. Um, was the person who, who did this, um, wrote a book, I think, and, and participated in our webinar. But it also involves kind of elements of what I call, or what, what's known as rewilding. So let's think of like, everyone's got one if you live in urban Florida. Think about like a, a, a an old, you know, strip mall, and they've got vacancies, uh, the Kohl's or whatever big box store moved out and is no longer there. It's empty. And you just drive past this empty parking lot. Maybe there's like 50 to 100 spots. So like, you know it when you see it. You, you know what that looks like. And so sprawl repair would involve, um, you know, rethinking that space entirely. Let's say definitely removing parking that just sits. It's impermeable pavement that's just sitting there empty, not being used. Well, either removing it entirely or one creative concept could be let's turn that into, you know, a food truck market once a week. And you got to work with your city on the appropriate permitting. Um, there's probably some sort of electricity wiring situation needed to, to provide power to those food trucks and generators. But let's reinvent, reconsider that space um, for a food truck market. 
once a week or once a month, whatever it's got to be. And all of this is contextual, right? Like if it's on, you know, right off the side of six lane, busy, busy, you know, interior urban highway might not work. But if we're talking about, you know, a strip mall development on the outer fringes of St. Petersburg or something, um, and there are neighborhoods nearby, you, you work with what you've got nearby. And that's the whole, you know, wonky, nerdy planning stuff. Um, I think good bones, what I think of as good bones for sprawl repair is robust neighborhoods, like residential neighborhoods that have sidewalks that connect to your commercial areas, mixed use areas. So one, folks feel like they can get around without a car. I, I think that's also important. And that works in the urban areas. We can talk about suburban and more rural areas where car use is kind of inevitable or necessary. Um, but sprawl repair can look like a lot of different things depending on where you are. So smart growth advocacy sounds really important, really exciting, very complicated. Like I'm, 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 I know we're only going to scratch the surface on a lot of this, but how do you do what you do? What is the work that y'all do look like? Is it talking to community members and citizens? Is it, you know, uh, lobbying to legislators? Like what, what is the work? Both all, both all of those things <laughs> that you just mentioned. Um, you know, it is challenging being a statewide organization of a such a rapidly growing and really diverse state because we do local work as well as state work, right? And locally, depending on where you are in Florida, it's so different. It's so diverse. Um, and I mean that population-wise, what your natural, what your environmental uh, landscape looks like, so challenges and things worth protecting. So it's hard. It's really tricky. I'll, I'll start with the state level first and then talk about local. But at the state level, we've got an office up in Tallahassee. And so we've um, traditionally had someone up there during the legislative session, you know, doing lobbying, walking the halls, talking to legislators, um, speaking up on bad bills and, and sharing with our members kind of the nuance of some bills that go through the legislative session. Um, I'm not sure, you know, if you or your listeners are familiar with how the, the legislative process works, but it's a, a very brief window for the state, for what, the third most populous state in the country to get all of their business done for the year. And it's January 9th to March 8th next year. Yes, for this year. Good. In Florida, it rotates as well. So every other year, you've got a different start date. That's confusing. But this year, you've got it down. January start. 60-day window, I believe is the number. 60 days. And we're not only talking about like growth and environmental related bills, we're talking about public education, public health. Um, in, in years when we've had bad storms, you've got select committees on hurricanes, resiliency, recovery. These are really big, important state issues that and I mean it when I say important, right? At 1000 Friends, we care about public health and education because that all goes into making our communities what they are. Yeah. But it's my point is it's it's it is difficult to get your message across in such a short window of time when so many other things are going on. But that's that's what we, we work on each year. And we work with partner environmental groups as well. So, so what, what, what are you trying to get across? Is it laws passed that restrict certain types of development? Is it, uh, you know, what, 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 if you could say what moves the needle the most, what is it? Well, we try to be for things as well, like in support of it's, don't always want to be against things. It's not as fun, <laughs> but I'll start there. We we are opposed to any bills that limit the ability of citizens to participate in the planning process, the community planning process. 
So in Florida, community planning, every local government is required to have a comprehensive plan. That comprehensive plan is like the blueprint for growth and development. It kind of guides what land uses go where in your jurisdiction, in your county or city. And um, we, since our founding, really believe that citizens who live there, they ought to have a say for their kids and grandkids what their county or city looks like going forward. So citizen involvement in the comprehensive plan, that is what we are always up there at the, at the Capitol advocating for. We're protecting that. And so an example of a bill last year that we were against that in our view limited the ability of citizens to participate was a bill that kind of squashed uh, citizen challenges to comprehensive plans. So if they brought a legal challenge, it would have made the prevailing party attorney's fees um, required, you, you must pay those as the citizen challenging. So if you lose, you're on the hook for your local government's attorney's fees and mm. possibly the developer of whatever proposal um, that you are challenging. And so it's kind of a David and Goliath situation. And we don't believe that litigation should be the first option at any time, but it's just one more thing that adds an obstacle to citizens feeling like they can't, they don't have a real say in how their community is shaped. We think that's a bad faith practice for, for comp planning. Yeah, no, yeah, that's awful. <laughs> what, what What's the logic behind that even being proposed in the first place? Well, here's where it gets more complex, right? So one idea being frivolous lawsuits are bad and, and we'd agree with that. Bringing, bring, challenging, a, filing a legal challenge just because you don't like, you know, what kind of development is going to go in, you know, and you're just like, I'm going to be that ornery citizen and, and challenge it. So one reason from the bill sponsor side of things is we're, we're cutting down frivolous lawsuits. We want to, and I'll also add housing is a really big issue, affordable housing. It's really expensive to live here. And so we've been hearing a lot of, of, of use of the affordable housing narrative. We need to streamline, expedite, make it as easy as possible to build housing. And then it gets complicated. We're not against affordable housing. However, each local government presumably knows where and how they're gonna accommodate housing in their, in their county or city. So let's follow that comprehensive plan, allow meaningful citizen input before we get to approving developments and go from there. And that's it's a tedious process. And perhaps it goes a little slower for developers than they'd like. They want it to be faster. Um, that's what we see on the other side as a reason for, you know, making it more difficult for citizens to file a legal challenge. And, and that's that's difficult. It's like I said, David and Goliath um, type of situation. There's a lot here, Haley. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot here. We could it's go a lot into to digest. Yeah, in my I'm also an urban planning student, and I've been internally struggling with this concept of yes in my backyard, YIMBY versus NIMBY, not in my backyard. Hmm. You know, environmentalists. That's how that's I am an environmentalist. That's what I started my career. We often can be categorized as NIMBYs, not in my backyard, and that's hmm. that's problematic going forward. So. I probably should kind of retire using those categorizations. They're not appropriate really to, to capture what we mean going forward. But yeah, how do we balance affordable housing with protecting our natural resources? So I'll give an example of the kind of legislation we're for when we go up to Tallahassee. Yeah. We're against stuff that prohibits citizen participation, but instead we're, we're also for legislation that adds additional protections to some of our special places. So last legislative session, my colleague, Jane West, she was um, um, critical in, in drafting a bill that helps 
create a new area of critical state concern up in Brevard, the Brevard Barrier Island region. And so it's this barrier island with sensitive um, uh, uh, sea turtle nesting grounds. And so this new bill makes the bar for new developments on the barrier island just a bit much more difficult, right? It, you had to go through a couple more um, permitting and review procedures with the county before you're allowed to develop on that coastline, which we think is appropriate for a couple reasons, for resiliency related reasons, for um, endangered species, uh, sea turtle nesting grounds. So that was a bill that passed this last year. That was a big win for us. Um, we had great support over in the Brevard area from local organizations. Um, the Senator and, and representative of the Brevard area were, were really supportive and instrumental in getting that passed. I live in Manatee County and there's a lot of sprawl happening, mm -hmm. developing as we go east. And as a citizen of Manatee County and someone who tries, you know, their best to be involved, it, it feels just absolutely overwhelming to watch, you know, 100 acres at a time get completely cleared down to the, the sand. What is the best steps a concerned citizen can take here in this state to fight against sprawl or to implement smart growth? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's literally just speaking up, getting involved in the local commission. And you're, to your point, Mason, it's, it is daunting, especially in places where the growth is happening so fast. Like, it would be so discouraging to me if I were a Manatee County citizen right now, because y'all have got a lot going on with regards to wetlands and um, development like you said, reaching into the eastern part of the county. Um, I think ultimately, you know, encouraging folks to vote for commissioners and local electeds who support the things that you believe in. And that that's not just environmental protection and water quality protection. It could also mean encouraging and supporting, you know, small local businesses. But you can do so in such a way like that uh, protects what makes that region so special. So Manatee County being a great example, I'm I go paddleboarding down there in that in that area. That's that's where I go when I want to get a slice of old Florida and get out of like urban Pinellas County. I mean the southern Tampa Bay area, right? Um, it's the last stretch of Tampa Bay, in my opinion, that's you know still got what once was there years and years ago. <laughs> so communicating that to your commissioners, inviting them out to go to the mounds with you and explain this is what makes this place special to me. How can we support one another in protecting it? You know, understanding in politics, right? Every local elected's got something they've got to bring back to their constituents who put them in office. I think we just got to encourage folks to share. And I think there's bipartisan overlap in interests here uh, in, in what that is in Florida, protecting the natural and water quality that the land's protecting that. I'm getting heated, I'm getting excited. Go protecting the things that, you know, support local ecotourism businesses that bring people to the seafood restaurants and, and you know, uh, charter boat industry, uh, charter boat fishing industry, depending on where you are in the state. Um, so finding that that commonality between yourself and your local electeds, and it doesn't even have to be the elected officials too. those nerdy planner types that I, I re referenced earlier. They're all they're the staff at your city or county. They're always willing Maybe not always, but most of the time they're willing to sit down with you and, and talk about what's next in your comprehensive planning process and opportunities to engage. Uh, state law requires that 
the city and county get feedback from citizens on any updates to their comprehensive plan. So that is still legally required. That's that has not gone away yet in the state of Florida. So by law, there are opportunities to weigh in. I think it's you not only weigh in and share what you value, but you then arrange a meeting, make a phone call, speak up and talk to your elected official. Can you tell me a success story or an example of a citizen that took action with the work that you do? I'll give two. One is a few years ago, the state of Florida required or passed a law to create MCORs, these multi-use corridors of economic and regional significance, something like that, MCORs. And that was a proposed toll road that was going to stretch from pretty much the Georgia border up near the Panhandle all the way down to the Naples area, southwest Florida. And it was going to pass through, you know, some of the most pristine, rural, untouched lands across the state in southwest and up in the Big Bend part of the state of Florida. So naturally, that's really concerning for a lot of reasons to a lot of people, a, a, a toll expressway you know, not, not only does it bisect land, impede wildlife crossings, but it induces other types of developments, sprawl. Any interstate exit you have, you're just kind of opening up the floodgates for new sprawling style development. My, my dad always uses the example of feeding pigeons. He says it's feeding, feeding pigeons. pigeons. Exactly. You try to fix traffic and travel with, with roads, all you're doing is feeding pigeons. Wow. There will always That's... be more. They keep yep. coming. You can't stop it. And then, you know, like you said, that toll road could sit untouched for 10 years in the Big Bend area. And eventually, eventually someone's going to come along and say, you know what? This is really convenient for a housing development right here. And some things change in this area. I'm going to buy this land. And, well, they need grocery stores. Well, they need doctor's offices. Well, they need yeah. you know, everything else. And it's just it's slow enough to not yep. be concerning. But in an environmental sense, it's happening in the blink of an eye. Yep. I think in Florida, feeding seagulls is more accurate. Like you really <laughs> yeah. get a cat bombarded on the beach when you pull out your sandwich or something. All right, I'm gonna it's I'm like gonna edit it. In, yeah, I'm gonna edit to that. It's like feeding seagulls. Feeding seagulls. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good metaphor, though. I mean, it it just opens up, you know, the possibilities for a landowner. And I I try I really try to balance being like antag antagonistic sounding towards property owners and developers, right? Because that we do. Have, robust property rights in this in this country in the state of Florida but I think it's up to our leaders and our citizens to really dictate how that property is is used and developed and how it benefits the community so that's I feel like I have to caveat with that but anyway MCORs um, there were there was divided up into three different segments to represent the three different regions that that road would would pass through um, the, the Department of Transportation pulled together three different task forces with about 40 members representing all the different stakeholder sectors, counties, cities, environmentalists. And so for the three different task forces, about 40 different people on each. And we participated in each of those task forces. But I'm going to point to who I thought made a really powerful uh, push against these roads was a, a group called No Roads to Ruin Coalition. And where they were especially really powerful was up in the Levy County, Jefferson, Taylor, Big Bend, rural Florida stretch, Marion County as well. I'd even kind of bring it down there. They had um, really active vocal citizens, kind of uh, unlikely bedfellows with, with different <laughs> like conservative and liberal leaning groups 
um, that traditionally don't work together, but they came together and got their local electeds to pass resolutions opposed to the toll roads. And when your local government decides to like about face and say, you know what, we don't need this economic development that these roads would bring in our community. We're listening to our citizens. They're telling us they like our rural, more agricultural lifestyle here. They want to protect what we've got. And when they turn around and pass a resolution, that's powerful. And, and as much as the state sometimes overlooks or stomps on local governments, they couldn't ignore it this time around. And so there were a handful of local governments in that Big Bend area that passed resolutions as a result of that citizen coalition. So that's that's a success. And it's a couple of years old now at this point in terms of you know anecdotes, but that's a really good one. I also want to, not necessarily a success story yet, but in Manatee County, y'all have got a really vocal group of citizens weighing in on, on the change to your wetlands comprehensive plan language. And that's ongoing right now. I think just the other day, your county commission voted to approve a change to the comprehensive plan that weakened protections for wetlands. And there's a, a, a local young guy, he's I think 15 years old, and he has been, as a young person, extremely active and weighing in on an issue that's kind of wonky, technical, but it, it he, he, he uh, messages and communicates in a way where it's really not. It's about protecting, you know, the, the marshes, swamps, wetlands, mangrove estuaries, the things that he knows and plays in and recognizes as important as a 15 year old. Um, he's provided some really powerful testimony and kind of stood up and not allowed himself to be spoken over. I'm forgetting the young man's name, but it's available with um the folks at Sunco uh, Suncoast Waterkeeper have been uh, promoting his voice. So that's a local example that inspires me lately. They're currently, you know, still fighting this this comprehensive plan change, but that's ongoing to be continued. I'm going to look this up because I'm not exactly sure who you're talking about. And uh, I, I want to know because that's I find that super inspiring. Sprawl in Florida seems to never end, but there's so much there's so many people like y'all, your organization, doing a great, great work. There's a lot of money being poured in to acquire lands and to make sure we can try to implement a lot of this, these smart growths. Is there an area of the state that's doing it well or a place that y'all see or even all the way down to a neighborhood that's like, this is a great example of who's doing it the right way? I would look to some of the, the land trust organizations. I'll name a couple, but there are many, many more. You know, Conservation Florida, Alachua Conservation Trust, North Florida Land Trust, um, and the folks, those are the land trust organizations, but we met at the Florida Wildlife Corridor Summit in, in Orlando a few weeks ago. But that group, there is great momentum. And like you mentioned, there's good, there's a lot of funding right now at the state level. Um, I'm from Gainesville, Florida originally, so I'm really partial to the springs sheds up there. Mm -hmm. And anytime I hear about an acquisition along the Santa Fe River, or the Itchituckney River, anything that affects the wa those watersheds, I get really excited. So I pay I pay close attention to Alachua Conservation Trust. I think those folks are doing a really great job up there. And the balance also is like acquiring this land, yet still promoting our springs in these rural natural areas so that people can see them and recognize why they're worth protecting. And I think the folks up there are doing a really good job right now. So that's an area I would look to. I think there's some interesting stuff happening down in the Lake Wales area. Are you from Polk County? Did we talk about that? Yeah, I'm from Frostproof, actually. 
Yeah. So you're probably more familiar. Mm -hmm. Well, I was going to say, I think the Lake Wales Ridge is our next big test in a way. I think that's our next big test as Floridians. You know, if we do it, we conserve land and develop well, we deserve to keep Florida. If not, we lose quite a bit. I don't want to think about the alternative, but there's, it's a, you know, heavily um, urbanizing area, outer Orlando kind of creeping down the I-4 corridor, influencing that part of the state. Lake Wales, the, the city, um, is going through a visioning process right now. They've, they've brought in a consultant. 1,000 Friends of Florida has been involved weighing in and supporting the Lake Wales Envisioned Project, which entails um, conserving a big chunk of land. I think it's, it's the Tiger Creek area. Tiger Creek Don't Preserve is owned by, uh, by the Nature Conservancy. Yep, so there's some overlap in what this Lake Wales Envisioned um, kind of adding on and expanding that area, the, the natural area there. Um, and then gradually opening it up for recreation. Like they're, they're thinking big, they're thinking long-term in Lake Wales. So that's an area I would keep an eye on. And by thinking big, <laughs> it also means de uh, building better communities, developing well, focusing on where you already have density in your downtown area, encouraging mixed use, building and, uh, excuse me, commercial and residential areas in your downtown existing area where you already have transportation infrastructure, wastewater, sewage infrastructure. That's what we mean by building better and, and doing it well um, before you sprawl out into you know, natural and agricultural lands. But that's an area I would watch. Um, I think they're off to a great start and it's really up to the citizens and the local electeds to uphold what they say they're going to do in their vision process. Um, but I've got, I've got high hopes. That is, uh, that's exciting. You know, it, it's, such a special place um to me you know that's that's one place i do pay attention to a lot just because it's going through a lot of change you know the citrus industry is changing a lot of that land is up for grabs or will be soon and and it is appealing it's it's in on the i-4 corridor not the it's not the kind of corridor we often talked about with the wildlife corridor it's a different kind of kind that's you know ripe for development going to be and it's also high ground uh that's going to be more and more of a concern as sea levels rise, you know, if there's a lot of, yeah. you know, it's my opinion that it's going to take a couple bad storms to scare enough people to come inland. And then all of a sudden there's this new reason to develop inland and to develop on higher ground is just, well, we have to come inland. We have to go yeah. to East County or West, whatever side of the state you're on, because sea levels going up. We got to protect people. It's going to be better for everybody. There's going to be these new pressures here soon. Um, and it's only going to take a few bad storms for kind of the, the, the mindset to shift, even if it's still a ways away. That's what I think. So I think that area will be even more pressured. I think you're totally right with that angle. That's something we need to be prepared for at the state level when new laws and bills are, are carved out, written to, in, to really direct where development occurs. Um, we need to be ready to defend conservation land always. I mean, there, there are legal protections once a property is put into a conservation easement or protected, but we need to constantly be ready for it and have some tough conversations about where do Floridians go post-storm, right? Where managed retreat, discussion about, okay, we shouldn't be rebuilding these hurricane flood-prone areas. And in, but simultaneously, we need this water recharge area, the wildlife and the Lake Wales Ridge. Like it's a it's a going to be a tough thing to balance, right? You know, you have to protect this place a hundred times, you only lose it once. 
So it is an ongoing fight, which sounds really daunting. It sounds really difficult. But, you know, we do want to drive home on this show that 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 so much good is happening. So many people feel the way you and I do. And uh, it feels very isolating, but it's not. You know, you got to realize when these kind of things come to vote and 80 percent of the uh, of the county supports it. Well, that's you know, that's millions of people that are that feel the same way you do. It really is just finding ways Mm -hmm. to to make sure you realize and find ways to know you're not alone in this. We've talked a little bit about uh, what what locals can do. How do you suggest people who have nine to fives, people who are raising families, people who have lives to live, just all the things that life come to be? How do you suggest digesting the information? Start to get more into this. Like, where do you suggest? Are there websites you suggest? Do y'all help break this information down by yeah. you know, by counties? What what are some of the steps folks can take to start understanding more about what's going on in their area? Yeah, I definitely suggest subscribing to our newsletter, our email list, and you can sign up for either like the legislative alerts or just the general email. Um, we try, we do our best to break down like the legislation that's filed and explain in point blank terms how what that means for the environment and what that means for for growth and how it'll affect your community. So we try to simplify it because it is it's it's a daunting subject and like I we were founded by planner nerds and I think it's planner nerds and policy people. We got to make sure we explain how this is applicable to, you know, the average person who cares, because like you're saying, a lot of people care about this issue and can feel quite alone by it, but no, there's so many more of us that are out there working on this issue. So one subscribe to our our newsletters and I'm going to propose something that sounds a little off or weird, but bear with me for a second. I living in St. Petersburg, I was trying to get more involved personally, like recent homeowner um, wanting to figure out what my commission is doing. And in, and in big cities, bigger cities, it can be challenging because there's like more commissioners, more stuff going on. It's like faster. So I started bicycling more. <laughs> I started riding my bike because I really care about um bicycle pedestrian issues here. I want, I I hate when we learn about a new traffic fatality, you know, someone hit and killed by a a car. So I started to ride my bike more and roads that I would frequently travel for uh, going to the gym or going to the grocery store. I would take my bike when, when it was appropriate or, or able to do so. And I gained a whole new perspective on what it means to be a cyclist, a walker. Um, I would bike by folks who rely on the bus and I'm just, I'm able to be in a new perspective and think through like (laughs) what the actual challenges are from a whole new lens. So that that might seem like kind of a silly example, but it gave me a new perspective. I would suggest um, visiting a park, a public communal space that you haven't visited before. This sounds like silly stuff that they teach you in elementary school, right? Go to your library, go to these common third spaces. But I think it helps people value what they have in their community, but also recognize like what are we working towards here and what kind of quality of life are we trying to protect? So get yourself out of your normal routine, go to a state park, try something a little different. And I think it'll like stimulate some brainwaves and you'll, you'll able to be able to think a little differently about some of these challenging issues. So kind of, kind of a vague recommendation, but I, I highly recommend it. <laughs> you know, and, I, and I'll say people talk about wanting to start a movement and whatnot. I, I feel that pressure, like I got to do more, but really using, using the resources, using the land, like going out and recreating is one of the mm-hmm. most powerful things you can do because you're just showing the need for it. And then when you do that, you fall more in love with it. 
uh, and you totally. want to protect it more. You know, you and I are not wanting to protect random plots of land just because we love these places. And how, how do we love them? Why do we love them? Because we've experienced right. how wonderful they are and been out there and had amazing paddleboard experiences on the Itchitugny or seen mm -hmm. a deer and a bear out in, you know, the Lake Wells Ridge or whatever it is and just said, this is magnificent. It has to continue like this. This can't be a parking lot in 10 years. It has to, it has to be this. Um, how do we ensure that? And so we start seeing all these ways. So it does, does, doesn't happen. And if I could advise or just encourage anybody, one of the next most radical things you do, you can do is just take someone with you, show yeah. someone else. How many people sit there in towns that are, I mean, I grew up in Frostproof, and I feel like I'm just now understanding in my 30s um, how amazing of a place it was I lived and so many corners of it I had never seen so many places yeah. I didn't quite understand I, I stayed in my yard I stayed in my town I stayed in my my high school to house corridor almost for 10 years you know what I mean it's just like you don't break out of your bubble that much but when you do especially with new eyes I'm like this existed my whole life and I didn't know it, this river or this preserve yeah. or Tiger Creek. I think I went out there twice. And now it's like every time we go home, we're going out there and we're seeing it. And it's just so magnificent. And how many kids are in that same boat? You know, how many adults are in that boat? And uh, just show it to people. When you go, take others with you. Couldn't have said it better. I, I totally agree. Bring someone. And for those choosing to, to start families here in Florida, like take your kids. Take your kids with you. They're never too young. Get them out there. <laughs> That's awesome. So, so you, you kind of alluded to this earlier. Where is a place in Florida that's particularly special to you? It's The Itchituckney is the one I always go back to. The Itchituckney River, the number of times I either tubed it or just snorkeled it <laughs> as a kid growing up. That will always, I'll probably always go back to that being my first love. But lately, it's the Chazowitzka River and I think it's Seven Sisters Spring. Mm. So the Chaz, the Chaz River, um, there's a spring, it's spring fed. And I, we had just had goggles. I didn't like bring a snorkel or anything. And you can dive down in these, they're not caves. They're little like karst tunnels about six feet down. So it's not, not a terrible dive. And you can swim through like rock tunnels. And it was the most magical thing. I felt like a little kid. I wanted to just like stay there and swim all day long. Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. Seven Sisters Spring, what, an hour north of Tampa or so? An hour and a half, yeah. An hour and a half north of Tampa. Oh, incredible. That's awesome. So when it comes to, you know, when we hear stuff like, you know, walking the halls at the legislative session, reaching out to our representatives, are, are people usually more receptive to that than maybe we realize? You know, I, especially during like the off season. So you got to think ahead of the, the, the legislative session because they spend a lot of time in Tallahassee. They're busy. But in that off season, springtime, summertime, early fall, they are receptive um, much more than I think I used to think. They will take your call. Um, not always, but they will take your mm -hmm. call. They're willing to meet with you in their home office. And I think it's worth trying to do. I think it's worth trying to have that phone call with your legislator. Um, like I was saying, they want to look good on the environment. I think our state legislators want to be perceived as doing all they can to protect the environment. So help them do that and help them, but also keep them accountable, right? So just by having the conversation with them about, you know, your local Tiger Creek Reserve or your local Park Spring, you know, you name it, tell them about it. 
show them pictures, whether if it's a phone call. And sometimes you might only get their staff members on the line, but I think it's worth knowing they've got to they've got to make add you to their calendar. And the way they'll categorize that is that person was talking about the environment in my constituency. And so yep. it shows up. They have to they can't totally ignore you all the time, even though we sometimes feel like they do. <laughs> A shout out to our district um, in, in Manatee County, our commissioner, Amanda Ballard. I had sent an email, said, hey, I want to meet with you and tell you about the Florida Wildlife Corridor and how Manatee County ties into it and what I want to do to help. And she took the call. Uh, we, we met up. I gifted her. I, I showed her a book that was um, mm-hmm. that was the Path of the Panther book, told her to watch the film. And she gave me a decent amount of her time to explain it because she's from South Carolina mm-hmm. and came here and was super interested. And now, mm-hmm. you know, that was an hour on her Monday. So it's like she's taking that information into the week. And I just want to say these people are accessible, even though they don't feel like it. Make good use of that time. Tell them the story. Tell them why you care. And, and yeah, it definitely plants seeds that they take with them and, and do that with as many people as possible. It's not necessarily rocket science that it sometimes seems it might be. Totally agree. All right. We'll we'll talk soon. Thanks, Mason. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Well, there you have it, folks. That's Haley Bush with A Thousand Friends of Florida. There's a lot more to the story. There's a lot more you can learn about smart growth. I've been on some rabbit holes uh, since this conversation. And if you think someone is a good guest for the show, please reach out. Email me at uh, mason at adventuresportspodcast.com. That's my other show. I'll see y'all in two weeks.